Hey everyone, Jeremy L. Jones here, author of Ruins of Empire. I hope you're enjoying this free podcast novel. It is provided free of charge for your listening pleasure. It is a chance for you to enjoy, completely free, this pulp sci-fi adventure series, which is, as I mentioned, free. Did I mention the word free enough to let the guilt set in? Cool. Right now, you can support the podcast by going to kickstarter.com slash projects slash Runes of Empire and get yourself a copy of Runes of Empire number two, Templum Venerous, before it even hits Amazon. You can get signed copies of the paperback, hardback, or even just throw a dollar in the pot to say, yep, I like what you're doing. Keep it up. And as always, thank you for listening. You are listening to Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, Book One of the Ruins of Empire Project, a serial podcast novel by Jeremy L. Jones, read by the author and Tyler Murphy. The story so far. While trying to find the location of a lost city on Titan, the members of the Human Reconnection Project stumbled upon the smoldering remains of a massacre in front of a spaceport that was built when Titan was a flourishing colony centuries ago. While investigating the building, Cronus found a computer system that he could hack into. Exploring farther into the building, Vago lapsed into another dissociative state. This time he saw the massacre unfold before him and became convinced that the horrors they were seeing were the result of religious warfare gone out of control. Chapter 8 The digital records are sparse from that time. Most were either destroyed in the global wars or scrubbed by governmental or corporate entities in an attempt to write their own version of history. Much from that time has been forgotten, and what is known has been passed to us through the tradition of oral history. It is not the most reliable source, but when it comes to the pain of watching one's loved ones massacred in the killing fields or the anguish of fleeing one's home for a far-flung colony, our species has a very long memory. From the Fall, The Decline and Failure of 21st Century Civilization by Martin Raff Cronus blinked a few times. Numbers projected on a screen looked so still, so two-dimensional. Maybe that's why they didn't make sense. He was used to the way the numbers moved around him. They weren't just numbers then. They were smells, colors, emotions. They were alive. He searched through his pack until he found a gleaming silver board about the size of his hand. Hundreds of black lines were etched into every millimeter, and those contained thousands of transistors. With this, he could make the numbers dance. He crawled back into the mass of wires to install the board. The technology inside the kiosk was ancient, but with a few adapters and encoding lines, he was able to integrate the board into the computer system. Once he had it plugged in, he stood up and put his goggles back over his eyes. The world filled with digits streaming past him in every direction. It made him smile. He reached out to touch a scrolling matrix. When he saw it earlier, it didn't make any sense. It was the wrong sort of programming language. 
It was primitive, even for an ancient computer system such as this. Now in context, dancing and singing with the other numbers, Kronos understood. It was a security protocol, but nothing installed when the system was in use on Titan. This was something written much later, by somebody who had a rough understanding of the technology and the language, but failed to grasp the elegant nuance of the system. It was like somebody with basic knowledge of space travel trying to lock the hatch of a starship by nailing a length of wood across it. It was a simple security protocol to circumvent. Kronos set a simple breach algorithm on it and waited for the program to chew through the tangles of logic. Some commotion in the outside world caught Kronos's attention. He pulled up his goggles in time to see Althea and Isra leading Vago down the stairs and setting him down on a bench near the kiosk. The huge warrior was in an agitated state. He was panting, sweating, and yelling out that they were going to die here and we have to get out. Althea placed her bag on the ground and retrieved a needle. It wasn't the typical syringe that plugged into the RX-5, but an actual needle, the type that went into skin. Kronos's gut twisted at the thought. Vago, said Althea with forced calm, I need you to relax. Isra, you might want to hold him down and open his jacket. Vago, I'm going to give you a shot. It will calm you. Vago was fighting, but it was a weak, desperate fight. Not against Isra in particular, but against something. Everything. Isra was able to pull one side of his jacket down over his shoulder, while Althea jabbed the needle right through the arrow suit. Vago's eyes widened for a moment, then his whole body relaxed. Althea withdrew the needle and placed it into a mylar sack she retrieved from her medical bag. We can do without medical transport, but I would like to send a beacon out on the emergency channel. Isra stood up. We cannot. There is a civilization out here, and we should not risk any corporate influence until we have some basic protections for the people. Althea helped Vago lean back and checked his vitals on the screen, mounted to her arm. All the more reason we should leave now. He's stable. He'll make it back to base. But we shouldn't delay. We are not leaving, said Isra firmly. Isra, it's madness here. Vago's right. We've walked into something we can't understand and certainly not control. We're not prepared for anything like this and certainly not with two people incapacitated. Isra shook her head. Not now. Not when we are this close. The city has got to be only a few kilometers away. Jesus, Isra, we'll come back, properly rested and at full strength. These people might not have that kind of time. You remember the gap in the radio band. The corporation is on the move. If we abandon the mission now, there is no telling what Laban will do. Althea stood up, becoming equally exasperated. Then call your people. Tell them we found a civilization. We clearly have. We can get protection for these people. We do not have evidence. Don't have evidence, said Althea, motioning towards the massacre outside. Are you honestly suggesting that those people set themselves on fire? A series of high-pitched beeps from the computer pulled Kronos' attention from the argument and back to the kiosk computer. He slid the goggles back over his face and looked at the numbers again. Isra took a deep breath and spoke in the same calm, emotionless tone. Of course not. But we are looking for civilization, Althea. There is no civilization out there. It might be the opposite of it. 
Althea sat back down and reached into her bag for an iris scanner. I'm sorry, Isra, but as your medical officer, I can't sign off on this. Vago needs medical attention, so does Kronos. Isra, Althea, Kronos said, his high-pitched voice straining to be heard over the argument. I think you should see something. Isra put her hand on her hips. Will he die? Althea shook her head wearily. What do you mean, will he die? Will he die in the next six hours? Kronos watched the numbers scatter erratically around him. Something is happening. I cannot tell if it's automatic or human-monitored. But something senses my presence, and it's reacting. Althea went back to the iris scanner. No, she conceded. No, he won't. Will he die in the next eight hours? Isra pushed. Althea jerked her head back. Just what are you asking? Isra maintained her calm. Time. Just long enough to get the proof we need for the Ministry to set protections. Lights all over the spaceport flickered, and Isra's voice trailed off. An ear-piercing screech signaled an ancient sound system coming to life, and all around them screens flickered. They were so old that many only displayed distorted colors and lines if they displayed anything at all. Kronos unplugged the silver board from under the kiosk, along with the adapters, and stashed it in his bag. Althea and Isra watched the flickering screens in shock. They all showed a table of Earth City names, dates, times, and a status column, the last of which flashed a few times and showed delayed for every row. Althea stood up. What is this? A timetable, said Isra. The comings and goings of transport ships from a thousand years ago. The picture on the screen flickered to black and then displayed an unsettling face. It was an old man with deep wrinkles, a hard frown, and a general look of miserable authority. The picture showed him only from the tops of the shoulders to the forehead, and he looked through the screens like a displeased schoolmaster. Kronos jumped and pulled on his backpack. I think... I think someone knows that we are here. The man spoke. Malame de la compagnie, laste tun locon. Althea whispered, Do you understand any of it? Isra closed her eyes. Some of the words are familiar, some of the syntax as well, but not enough to translate. Althea and Isra listened as the man finished his speech in a strange language. Then he began again. Enemies of the Companio, leave this place. Venganto appear at the eclipse. Leave or you will burn. Leave and never return to Titan. Our people resist you. Our city repels you. Venganto will destroy you. Saluton la la compagnio. The screens went blank, the lights flickered off, and the whole spaceport was sucked into a dark silence. Althea swallowed. I understood that. Isra breathed hard. So did I. Althea picked up her medical bag. Can we leave now? Isra led the way across the tarmac, clutching Vago's gun and scanning the open landscape and the forest ahead for any sign of danger. Kronos followed so close behind that his high, nasally wheezing through the mask grated on her nerves. A few meters back, 
Althea and Vago struggled to keep up. As the sedative Althea gave him took hold, he slipped into an incoherent, semi-conscious state. He stumbled forward while Althea, under his arm, braced his enormous body with a relatively small frame. The silence and stillness of the area was only interrupted by wafting smoke and the crackle of still smoldering bodies. Isra's eyes darted in her head, and she kept her gun raised as she pushed the group forward towards the relative safety of the forest. Back within the trees and under the canopy, Isra felt she could relax to some degree. She released a breath of air that she felt she had been holding since they left the spaceport. Out of immediate danger, her mind went back to the old man's warning on the screen. Leave this place. Levenganto appear at the eclipse. Leave or you will burn. Leave and never return to Titan. Isra looked at the sun peeking through the canopy and creeping towards Saturn above the eastern horizon. The fourteen-day rotation of Titan made for long days, but even then, she estimated they only had about twelve hours before the sun disappeared behind Saturn. They all stumbled into the clearing where Isra had set up camp less than an hour ago, but it was not as they left it. The domed tents were still standing, but everything she had stashed inside was thrown out and scattered on the forest floor. In a flash of panic, she sprinted to the camp. The two crates she stashed inside her tent were gone. The two left on the back of the crawler were missing as well. Everything was gone. Isra paced back and forth between the crawler and her tent. Her normally cool, composed demeanor crumbled like a castle in an earthquake. No, no, this cannot be happening. Althea strained under Vago's weight. What's wrong, Isra? Isra pulled her short, black hair back. It is all gone. The food, the supplies, it... it's all gone. Althea limped with Vago to the crawler and helped him sit down. It'll be okay, Isra. We'll get as far as we can, then we can call for assistance. Isra paced back and forth. We cannot leave now. Both Althea and Kronos were stunned. Kronos took a couple of deep breaths through the mask. Can't leave. Can't stay. Doomed either way? It's okay, Kronos, Althea reassured. Isra, we already agreed. And you saw the screens in the spaceport. Isra marched to Althea and put her hand on her shoulder so that the two women were face to face and only centimeters apart. Althea, do you trust me? The medical officer blinked at the question. Of course. Isra continued. And you know I would never put us at a great risk, not unless it was absolutely necessary. I don't understand, Isra. What's going on? There is something I cannot tell you about this mission. Something about what was in a couple of the crates. We must not leave without them. I need Vago to track them down. Althea stepped back and glanced down at Vago slumped in the seat of the crawler, with his eyelids half-closed and twitching. Are you mad? He is in no state. Can you bring him out of it? Well, not directly. The sedative needs time to work its way through his body, and his endorphins are still shot. I can't... Isra touched her shoulder again. Please. It is important. Isra watched Althea's face. Althea was loyal, and she did trust Isra, almost to a fault. But she could see the waves of conflict in her eyes, and she wrestled with the notion. I would not ask, Isra added. Not unless it was important. I will tell you why very soon, and I promise that you will understand. 
Althea took a deep, quivering breath and looked back down at Vago. It'll take a cocktail of drugs. I'm not quite sure how they will interact, what he will be like, and for how long. Isra turned Althea so that she could look her in the eyes again. It is that important. Please, trust me. Althea nodded and knelt down to sort through her medical bag. One by one, she pulled out three syringes and an electronic cylinder with several ports on the side. She put each of the syringes in one of the ports, set the cylinder aside, and worked on the screen attached to her arm. After a few moments, the plungers on the three syringes dropped in varying degrees. Althea pulled a fresh syringe from her bag, plugged it into the cylinder, and pulled out the new mixture. Althea opened Vago's jacket to expose his medical regulator. Just before she locked the new drug combination into place, she glanced at Isra. Isra nodded. We need him. Althea placed the syringe into the port and touched the button at the top. The plungers slowly descended. There were at least ten people, and they were moving through the forest at quite a clip. They didn't act overly concerned about where and how they walked. That was good. It left a trail that Vago could follow. A good number of broken branches, crushed bushes, and footprints in the soft, muddy ground. Vago paused, sniffed the air, and took in the sounds of the forest. Well, where did they go? asked Isra, kneeling beside him. Quiet, Vago snapped. He closed his eyes and tried to listen again. He couldn't detect anything but the ambient sound of the forest, along with Cronus's perpetual wheeze through the breather. Vago looked back to where Cronus and Althea were standing behind him. Could you shut him up, too? Althea glared. What would you have me do, Vago? Ask him to stop breathing? Vago shrugged. They could only be so lucky. But the truth was, it didn't matter if he did or not. The shot Althea gave him helped. It made him more alert and focused his mind, but he could still feel the haze clouding his senses. It was like a cup of strong coffee after being awake for 72 hours. Vago stood. They're heading south. Stay close and try to keep quiet. They started walking again, and Vago had to fight to keep his mind present. The Triple T withdrawal was in full force and made worse by the sedative Althea had given him. It threatened to take away whatever part of him was still there. At one point, the forest of Titan disappeared, and it was replaced by the Martian steppes, and Vega was tracking a wildcat through the waist-deep scrub grass. Later, he was wandering through the neon-lit club district of Rio de Janeiro, looking for a hit of the tea. Visions hit one after the other, and fantasy blurred with reality, and again into fantasy, until it was hard to tell one from the other. Behind him, Isra's voice snapped him back to reality. Vago, focus! His world snapped back. He was on Titan, deep in a lush green forest. There were footprints on the ground, bare and larger than average, but human. Next to that, a tree with a scratch in the bark. He turned to Isra. They're heading west! And again they were moving. Isra right beside him, trying to read the same trail marks that he saw, Althea and Kronos struggled to keep up. The haze hit again. This time, he was strolling through the slums of Rome, looking for a shard of tea. Then, flash, he was a child running through the tall fields of barley, 
away from the raiders attacking his village. All hallucinations, more frequent, more vivid. He needed a shard of tea, now before he lost himself completely. But that was impossible. If Althea saw him, if Isra saw him, it would be over. They would kick him back to Earth, where he would die in some gutter. He forced himself to focus. They were heading east now, and there was a trail of footprints on the soft ground. The forest started looking the same. The trees, the shrubs, the rocks, and the lay of the land all seemed familiar, like a memory replayed in his mind. Even the trail signs he followed started to repeat themselves. Then he stopped and looked at a set of bare footprints. Next to that, a tree with a scratch in the bark. Behind him, Isra snapped. Vago, what is wrong? We need to keep... Vago had a moment of clarity. Things didn't look the same because his mind was turning to mush. Things were really the same. Whatever, whoever they were tracking was aware and leading them in a circle. We have to stop, Vago slurred. Isra walked in front. Why exactly? Vago raised his head and scanned the canopy. We've been here before. They're swinging back around, taking us back the way we came. Isra started to say something when Althea walked up. He's right. She pointed at a set of boot prints in the mud. Vago's prints. We just came this way not too long ago. They know we're following them, said Vago desperately. They're letting us know that they know. This is a message. Back off. Isra put her hand on her hips. And if we do not? Following them will do us no good. They know we're here, and they know these forests. There ain't no reason they won't jump out of the trees right now and slit our throats. We have to go. It's over. Isra looked around the forest, taking full stock of their situation. It should have been an easy decision, but she hesitated. Why? What was so damned important? Then she spoke in a strange, resigned tone. Fall back to camp. We need to regroup and come up with another plan. Sergeant Carr crouched in the dense underbrush and watched the members of the Human Reconnection Project. They were just standing in the middle of the forest and... talking. He remained as still as he could. His knees and lower back throbbed in pain from being stuck in the same position for so long. But he waited. For a moment, he wondered if Vago hadn't picked up his scent again. Something was wrong. For the last hour, they had been wandering the forest like blind dogs in a squirrel enclosure. They weaved and zigzagged, and then did a giant 360 turn. It made not a lick of sense, and he couldn't get close enough to hear what, if anything, their reasoning was. He set his rifle down as slow and gently as he could, so as to barely disturb the foliage around him. He fished a transmitter Laban gave him out of his pocket, lifted it to his mouth, and whispered, This is Carr. Subjects are engaging in some kind of reconnaissance action in the woods near the city. No contact with native civilizations yet. There's a possibility my position has been compromised. I'm falling back for now. Next report in two hours. He replaced the transmitter and picked up his gun with the same precise, paranoid care he used before. At that moment, the whole group turned around and started heading in his direction. Shit. Had they heard him, 
or were they just lost? He picked a direction and started to ease himself out of their path. He had to put some distance between himself and them and hopefully get behind them. Once he felt he was safely out of their way, he started moving faster. He planned to move in a wide arc around their position and come up from behind. Even if they had detected him, they might get to a certain point, find no evidence, and assume they were hearing things. He came to a narrow clearing where a stream ran down a short, rocky cliff and formed a little waterfall. He set his rifle down next to it and examined the water. It looked clear, but reeked of ammonia. Carr grimaced and retrieved his own canteen. He sat on a rock near the stream, sipped water, and relaxed for a moment. He would let them get a ways away before he picked up the trail again. For now, he found himself enjoying this peaceful little place. He screwed the top back on his canteen and replaced it on his belt. Leaves and branches rustled around him as something or someone moved through them. He grabbed his gun and looked up to find his position covered on all sides by men. Long, gangly-looking men covered completely in thick animal skins. They didn't speak, but they all pointed rifles in his direction. Rifles more advanced than the weapon he carried, and far too advanced for this moon. Carr grinned, placed his gun on the ground, raised his hands, and clasped the palms behind his head. One by one, they started to converge on his position, keeping their guns pointed directly at him. Carr laughed. <laughs> Come on there, little fellas. No need to be afraid. You caught me fair and square. You have been listening to The Ruins of Empire, Saturnius Mons, the first book of The Ruins of Empire Project. The Ruins of Empire podcast was written by Jeremy L. Jones and produced by Sean Vincent. Cover art was by Nick Martin. Music was Broken Reality by Kevin McLeod at incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons 3.0 license. Thank you.